I'd like to invite you to turn with me in God's Word to the Psalter, and we'll be considering the second psalm this evening under the heading of, I love thy kingdom, Lord. Psalm 2, and then afterwards we'll turn in our Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 48. But first we'll give our attention to Psalm 2. The psalmist begins with a question, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for Me, I have set My King on Zion, My holy hill. And I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to Me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Ask of Me, and I will make the nations Your heritage and the ends of the earth Your possession. And You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. And blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Here ends the reading of God's Word this evening. We'll invite you also to turn in the forms and prayers in the pews in front of you to Lord's Day 48. Lord's Day 48, which can be found on page 255 of the Forms and Prayer. Page 255. Question 123 asks, What does the second petition mean to which we all respond? Your kingdom come means rule us by Your Word and Spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to You. Preserve and increase Your church. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all. Now, blessed congregation, Jesus' ministry was a ministry of the kingdom of God. It was the first words Jesus preached in His earthly ministry. Matthew 4, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Verse 17. Uh, The kingdom was so central to the ministry of Christ that in the Gospels there was more than a hundred references to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And it so permeated His ministry. It so permeated what He was talking about. You remember that the Jews thought He had come to establish a political revolution against Rome. When Pilate had the opportunity to interview Christ, he asked Him, are you the King of the Jews? Verse chapter 18 of John's Gospel. And you remember, of course, when He suffered upon the cross, He suffered under the inscription, this is the King of the Jews. Jesus taught that the kingdom had come. That His ministry brought the kingdom of God to earth. But if the kingdom has come, where is the king? Where is its territory? Where is its borders? 
Where is the subjects? Where are the citizens of this kingdom? And this question has confused people for ages. There's great confusion about what the kingdom of God even is. So much confusion. Fred Kloster notes an old prophet, Calvin Seminary. He says, there is no consensus in the church as to its precise meaning, referring to the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom? Is it heaven? Eternal life? Is it the church? The new heaven and the new earth to come in eternal life when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven? Well, my New Testament professor, Dr. Miniger at Mid-America, gave a good definition which I'd like to give to you this evening who said it like this. The kingdom of God are the places, is the places where God's will reigns. The kingdom of God are the places where God's will reigns. What this means is that the kingdom of God is not simply past tense when there was a theocratic nation. The kingdom of God is not, as the catechism says, uh, is not just a, a nation, but as the catechism says, it is present in us. The catechism says it is present in our churches, and I think you can add that it is present in our homes, it is present in our workplaces, it is present in our society when Christians who bow to the Lordship of Christ are in them. And one day, when the kingdom of darkness will finally be overthrown, the kingdom of God will fully come. It will be manifest and visible for all to see when Christ returns. But you and I live in between those times when Christ establishes the kingdom, and when He will come again to bring it fully. Gerhardus Voss, good Dutch name, called this the kingdom inaugurated and the kingdom consummated. In Jesus' ministry, He inaugurates this kingdom. But one day this kingdom will be consummated in His return. At risk of belaboring the point, I'd like to give you an illustration this evening. Do you remember the Battle of Normandy in World War II? When the Allied forces stormed the beach of Normandy in North France and overthrew the Axis powers there. We call that D-Day. And it was a decisive moment in the war. And when our men took that beach, in reality, they took the war, didn't they? They broke the Axis power. But it was still a year, over a year, before Victory Day when Germany would sign that unconditional surrender. See, in a similar way, we are living in between D-Day and V-Day. We live in between the time when God has dealt a decisive blow to the kingdom of darkness and His Son. Christ has stormed the beach of Satan, so to speak. And He has won the battle. But we are called to continue to fight as we await the final victory of Christ. What I want to show you from Psalm 2 is the rebellious nations, God's divine rule, and the kingdom's 
king. And all of this will help us in our prayer life. When we consider the rebellious nation, God's divine rule, and the kingdom's king. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2, and you will see that the kingship, the theme of kingship, pervades Psalm 2. If you turn to Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 26, you'll see that even though this psalm has no title, the Apostle Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that David himself wrote Psalm verse 2. And what David is writing about here is the subject of coronation. If he's writing about his own coronation, maybe the future coronation of Solomon, we don't know. But for you southerners who don't have a king, and for you visitors, you may not know I'm Canadian, so I do have a king, a coronation is a ceremony where they place the crown upon the head of the king. But it's so much more than a piece of gold. It's the investiture of the king's title, and it is the investiture of the king's power. And one of the things that's evident from this psalm is that the time of coronation was actually a vulnerable time for the nations. The surrounding nations see coronation as an opportune time to raid across Israel's borders. It's a perfect time when there is no king to capture cities and, to subjugate, and subjugated people would seek to overthrow Israel's rule over them. This is why the psalmist begins with, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Because we know during the reign of David, the Arameans, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Phoenicians, the Philistines, all of these subjugated nations, at every opportunity and every instance they had would seek to overthrow the reign of Israel. But what I want you to see in this psalm is that this teaches us that we can pray no matter how much the evil kingdom of darkness rages, we can pray knowing that the kingdom of God is secure. We can pray knowing that the kingdom of God is secure. Look with me at question one. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? And here the king is not looking just for information. He knows the answer to the question, why they're plotting and raging. It's more of an expression of astonishment. You could understand David as saying, what are these kingdoms thinking? Are they mad to plot against God's anointed king? The psalmist is amazed. He's even indignant, you could say, here in this psalm. And that's what the word rage and plot suggest. Rage can be used in the Bible to describe something like the tumult of the sea in a heavy storm. It's the kicking of the hornet's nest. It's the poking of the bear. They're stirred up into a frenzy. And they're plotting, putting plans together against the king. But the spirit of this verse is actually that David is astonished by their foolishness. It's ridiculous for them to rage. It's ludicrous for them to plot. Why? Look what he says. It's all done in vain. Vanity is a Hebrew word which means it's empty. It's meaningless. 
Their plotting is empty. Their raging is meaningless because David, or whatever king he is speaking about, is not there by might. That king does not sit on that throne by strength. Or he's not there because he is cunning. But he is there by the will of God. Look at verse 3. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, this is the major thought in the first stanza of this psalm. David was placed on the throne not just because he was handsome, could defeat a lion with his bare hands or a bear itself. David sat on the throne because he was there by God's sovereign appointment. What this means then is that the kings and rulers who are raging and plotting against David are not just plotting against him, but they are plotting against God Almighty Himself. The Arameans, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Phoenicians, the Philistines, all perennial enemies of Israel. And notice how David describes them. He says all of those kings and all of those rulers are getting together. What David is telling us is that they are amassing their greatest strength. Think about all that those kings would have had behind them. All the government they would have had. All the gold they would have had. All the chariots, all the horses, all the swords, all the arrows. Their greatest strength is, in a sense, coming to the borders of Israel and they are going to do war with the anointed king. But they're not doing war with the king. They're doing war with God Almighty. And even all of the king's strength and all of the ruler's powers are not enough to overthrow the Lord's anointed. He is stronger than the evil forces of His day. This reminds me of the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 16. Remember what He says, I will build My church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. The gates of hell referring to the strongest part. So that if all of Satan and his demons walk to the door of this church and they wanted to overthrow these people and send you all to hell, Jesus says they will not prevail for I am the builder. I am the church's king. Or if all of the kings and all of the rulers marched against Israel, it will never be overthrown so long as God's blessing rests upon her. The rebellious nations are thwarted if God is in the midst of His people. One interesting thing about this psalm, Psalms 1 and 2, we call these in, I guess what you would say, the academic circles, uh, the gateway of the Psalter. In order to get to the Psalms, you must come through uh, verse chapter 1 and chapter 2. If you flip back with me to chapter 1, it says that the righteous man meditates on God's law day and night. If you look then again at chapter 2, verse 1, it says the people's plot in vain. Would you find it interesting that the word meditate and plot in Hebrew are the exact same word? See, the one who is blessed, the one who is successful in this life, meditates on the law. Whereas the one who fails 
meditates against the Lord's anointed king. I want to call you folks by a word of application. Be careful what you meditate on. The psalmist is reminding us that we are blessed when we meditate on the word. But the evil of this world is in fact cursed when they meditate on evil things. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, a second word of application, it also means that the rebel kingdom of Satan must be destroyed. But we do not bear arms. At least the church does not bear arms. Because the rebel kingdom of Satan is not a struggle against flesh and blood. It is a struggle. It is a fight against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, says Paul in Ephesians 6. We can engage in the battle against the devil in prayer. Look at what the catechism says. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. We do this in prayer. We get on our knees. We pray, Father, keep me from sin. Help me to forgive others. Going to the means of grace, the Word of God, attending church, receiving the sacraments. The kingdom of the evil one is being destroyed. We would do well to notice that David prays with a settled confidence here. He knows that God is listening. He knows that God hears. He knows that God answers all of his prayers. See, that's the first thing we need to see about the rebellious nations. We can pray with assurance that God's kingdom is secure. Notice, second with me this evening, God's divine rule. See, in the second section of the psalm, verses 4-6, through six, God the Father is the speaker. And what is His response to their words in verse 3? Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Does God tremble that the nations of this world are gathering together to try to overthrow His King? Does He worry in His celestial throne room? Is He hiding behind His generals, counting up the army of heaven and seeing if He can counter their challenge? Look at God's response in verse 4. He laughs. It says God, who sits in heaven, laughs. And he is laughing because he knows the victory is sure. We can pray this evening knowing that the victory is sure. This is the only place in the Bible James Montgomery Boyce tells us where God is said to laugh. It's not a ridiculing laugh. I don't think God is mocking these people. But look at what it says in verse 4. That from his view from above, he sees that the plan that they have is actually futile. He who sits in heaven. That as he's looking down and he sees the world, he sees what they're up to and knows that it's fruitless. I like to call this the view from above. And generally, when we view things from above, we can see Better, we can better analyze a situation. That's why in war, they always want to have the highest vantage point, right? And as God can analyze the situation, He sees that it's fruitless. Think about it like maybe a mom of a young child who has a cardboard cutout of a rocket ship. I'm going to the moon, mom. 
Well, from above, she can laugh and say, okay, send me a postcard. Or if somebody stuck in a forest says, there's no way out, can the person in the helicopter laugh and say, it's just one more mile. Just keep going straight and you're there. So it is with God in heaven. As He looks down from His vantage point, He sees that even all of the nations, their greatest force in this world, is no match for Him. And He laughs. Notice, after laughing, He says this, Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. How will God do this? Will He squish that rebellious army under His thumb? Will He rain down fire and brimstone from heaven like He did on Sodom and Gomorrah? Look how God rebukes and terrifies the kingdom of darkness. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's greatest rebuke of the kingdom of darkness. God's terrifying of the evil rulers of this day is by coronating His his anointed king. Think about it. Of course, in the Old Testament, in the coronation of David, of Solomon, or other godly kings, would not the evil kings and rulers of that day have been terrified? How much more so will the king that God has set on Zion terrify the devil and the kingdom of darkness? You see, there have always been kings and rulers who have opposed the rule of God. And we could even say, Is it not fair to say that in some ways we are beginning to experience this in the West? Kings and rulers who are opposed to God. Are we experiencing it in the United States and in Canada? But there is comfort for our prayers here that God's kingdom will never be defeated no matter how bad things seem to get in this life. Why does God allow evil kings? Why does He allow worlds to become so liberal and countries to become so woke? Let us be clear. He is teaching us day by day to put our hope in heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. Don't worry about the rulers of this world. Your citizenship is in heaven. Don't worry about the housing market in West Michigan. Your citizenship is in heaven. Give yourself to that kingdom. That kingdom will never be thwarted nor defeated. By way of example, in the first century, there was a Roman empire, a, very, a Roman emperor, excuse me, a very wicked man named Diocletian. Ru- lived roughly 200 years after Christ. And he said he lived, it was his life mission, to extinguish Christianity. James Montgomery Boyce notes that he even struck coins and set up monuments around the world where he says this, and I quote, I have extinguished Christianity. Could you imagine living under a governor or a ruler that put that on the coin and that on his monuments? I have extinguished Christianity. But what is God's response to that? He laughs. 
See, on the contrary, history tells us that it was not He who extinguished Christianity, but Christianity that overcame His throne. In fact, the Puritan William Plumer notes of 30 Roman empires that lived during uh, Diocletian's reign, governors and provinces or others of high office who were distinguished by their zeal and bitterness. Listen to what he says happened to those 30 governors. He says, one became deranged. One was slain by his own son. One blind. One insane. One drowned. One diseased. Two committed suicide. Five were assassinated. Another five died. Eight were killed in battle or taken prisoner. Plumer goes on. And among those who were killed in battle was Julian the apostate who hated Christ the most. Who would persecute Christians and said he had his dagger pointed at God and heaven. But when Julian the Apostate died in battle, his final words were reported to be, Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. What does this mean? He's saying, though we raged against you, though we sought to overthrow the kingdom of Christ, Jesus still won. See, when we pray, Thy kingdom come, we pray that God would preserve and increase His church. And the Scriptures and history testify that God has and will preserve His church until the day of completion. Think about it, brothers and sisters. Where is Rome today? Where is Babylon? Where is Persia? Where is Edom? Where is Greece? Okay, that one's still around. But it's getting welfare from the UN. All of these great kingdoms that have stood in opposition to Christ's kingdom have been reduced to nothing while Christ's kingdom has been preserved throughout the ages. Notice with me what the catechism says. It will be preserved and we ought to pray that God would increase His church. Who increases the church? Preacher? Elders? Families? No, it says God increases His church. We ought to pray to that end. That God would increase His church. Jesus told us in the Gospel of Luke, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And we often end right there, but He goes on and then He says, pray to the God of the harvest that He would send forth His laborers to collect it. We ought to pray that God would collect the harvest through us. And when the church is full, and when new members are added to our midst, like Taylor, and like Alexis, we must say, not unto us, but to your name be the glory, O God, for the work that he does in his saints. So we can pray, knowing that God rules, and the victory is assured. I want you to notice finally this evening the kingdom's king. Who is this king that God installs upon Zion? The apostles were convinced that this psalm was messianic. Meaning it applies first and foremost to the Lord Jesus. The book of Hebrews applies verse 7 twice to the Lord Jesus. The book of Revelation refers the psalm to frequently 
referring or indicating that it refers to Christ. It says in Revelation 1 verse 5, Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Revelation 2 verse 27, He will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Revelation 12 verse 5, She will give birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter. We can pray knowing that the King of Judgment, Psalm 2, is also the King of Grace. The King of Heaven. But the first thing we see in this psalm is that this king will administer judgment. Do you see that in verses 7-9? through nine? I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The Father gives to the Son all of the nations. And the Son will come in judgment. See, the king on his throne doesn't just thwart the enemy's plans, but he will bring them justice. See, the book of Revelation says this about the Lord Jesus, that he is coming again. And he will bring the whole fully consummated kingdom to earth. He will no longer be meek and lowly. He will be conquering and triumphant. Revelation 19 says His eyes will be like the flame of fire. Verse 12, He will be clothed in a robe, dipped in the blood of His enemies. Verse 13, all of the armies of heaven behind Him. Verse 14, and He will strike down the nations and He will rule them with a rod of iron. Verse 15, a direct quotation from Psalm chapter 2. He is a king who is greatly concerned with justice. But He is a king who is so full of grace. Beloved, there's a lot of kingdoms in this world. And you can become a a citizen of these kingdoms by birth. You can become a citizen of a kingdom by immigration. But you can only enter God's kingdom through Christ. You are My Son. And today I have begotten you are the exact words that God the Father spoke over His Son at Jesus' baptism and His transfiguration. This is My Son whom I love. I am well pleased in His transfiguration. This is My Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. This is God's Son by right. In Jesus' ministry, He says that we can become citizens of heaven not by might, not by strength, not by beauty, but when we have a relationship with Him. Jesus says in Matthew 12, the one who does the will of His Father is His brother and is His sister. You are a citizen of heaven as much as He is by a relationship with Christ. See, this is the beautiful truth of the kingdom of God. That there is an access point. There is a door There is a way to become a citizen of heaven. And it is through God the Son. As we saw this evening with our dear sisters professing their faith, all one has to do is say, I love You, Lord Jesus. I give myself to Your grace. And the gates of righteousness swing open. 
Jesus governs and administers the kingdom. He is that King. He is its Lord. This Christmas season, we reflect on these words, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on His shoulders and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. He is the One who brings this kingdom. But notice how David ends this evening. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry with you and you perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. David says this Jesus is the King of the whole world. King of kings. Lord of lords. But then he asks the question, does Christ sit on the throne of your heart? He is king over this world, but is he king over you? Is he king over you, O kings of the earth? Is he king over you, O parents in your home? Is he king over you, individual, in your day? See, the catechism says that in the first part of this petition is our prayer is that first and foremost, he would rule us by his word and spirit so that more and more we would submit to him. What an incredible thing this evening that the God of judgment, King of kings and Lord of lords, invites you to the kingdom. Come and be a citizen. You may feel like a wicked king. You may feel like an evil ruler. But He invites you to come Kiss the Son. Come, embrace Him as Lord. Come, put Him on the throne of your heart and be welcomed to a new heavenly home. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You that Your kingdom has come in the person of Christ. It has been inaugurated in our hearts. And Your kingdom is prevalent in us and around the world and in Your church. And we pray, Lord, for that day to come when that kingdom will be consummated and made fully known and revealed to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Father, we recognize that there are many among us, many of our friends and family who are rebellious, who say with the kings and the rulers, let us throw off this God and His anointed King. We pray, Lord, that in Your sovereign divine rule that You might bring them to their knees, that they might confess Christ as Lord, open their hearts and receive them. For this offer still stands. God still stands in in heaven ready and willing to receive all who kiss the Son and receive Him as Lord. We pray that You would do all these things in the name of Christ who is our Savior. Amen.